So in the second chapter, James emphasized works as an essential outgrowth of faith. And he told us when we encounter someone who is hungry, they need food, not just high-sounding words. He even says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead in itself. He concludes by saying, once again, faith apart from works is dead, just to make sure at the end of the chapter we got it. And then at the beginning of chapter 3 last week, when Rick preached to us, who is now on the Jersey Shore over there and all that area and uh, enjoying some time away, he, can, he, he spoke about the great power of the tongue. Too often destructive. And he compared the tongue to a bit in a horse's mouth that controls the whole animal and to the rudder of a boat that steers the whole ship and to a small fire that can destroy a great forest. Our little tongue also exerts great pull on the direction of our lives. So after several chapters of warning and vivid illustrations of the consequences of living contrary to the plan of God, James moves into this passage now to describe the good life and avoiding the root of conflict and giving some positive guidance for pursuing this good life. And we follow along in the YouVersion app as we go into James 3.13 where James encourages deeds done in gentleness and wisdom. That's how he starts this whole thing. Wisdom. It would be easy to see this is kind of a top ten lessons of wisdom from James that are, that are all connected, all disconnected. However, that isn't the case. His major theme is that faith produces good works. And these are more the practical applications of that principle gathered together. On National Public Radio, This American Life program, John Hodgman conducted an informal, unscientific survey asking this question. Which is better? The power of flight or the power of invisibility? Do you want to be invisible or would you like to be able to fly? I want you to think about this question for a moment and decide in your head, what would you choose? Who'd rather be able to fly? Raise a hand. We got some flyers in here. All right. Oh, family of flyers. Who'd like to be invisible then, obviously? <laughs> Staff parish here says they'd like to be invisible. I like that. I like that a lot. And what would you do with your newfound powers? Would you be a superhero or super selfish? What John Hodgman found surprised him when he asked. No matter what power people chose, they used it in self-serving ways. Their plans weren't often heroic. In fact, they were almost never even kind. Husband wondered why no one wanted to take down organized crime or bring hope to the hopeless or at least swear vengeance on the underworld, if only for a little bit. 
Instead, Hodgman found that these his interviewees concocted schemes that all relied on their new superpowers to acquire their own personal desires. It really shouldn't be a surprise. It's the wisdom of the world. And the Apostle James is, is warning us against such false wisdom that it's about us. And he says the superpower we really need is divine Wisdom. What if we had that superpower in our lives? God's divine wisdom. James calls it wisdom from above. So let's see what all these bits are about in James that talk about this divine wisdom. The first thing, the first section is all about wisdom and understanding. That's where he's focused. He says, who is wise and understanding among you. This is a challenge. He's basically asking them to, to raise their hands if they believe they are wise and understanding. But be prepared, though, to answer a few questions. If you're truly wise and understanding, you'll understand that we will scrutinize your claim to see that you are wise and understanding, he says. And if you aren't truly wise and understanding you can be sure that these questions will reveal that. So it goes on, Show by your good life that your works are done in gentleness born of wisdom. Say wisdom. See, James suggests that wisdom and understanding will produce good behavior with wisdom's gentleness. See, the Greek word for gentleness that's used here is usually translated gentle or meek. But think about the word meek. That word usually suggests weakness, timidity. Nobody wants to be seen as being meek. But Matthew describes Jesus as pros, which is the Greek word. Matthew describes Jesus as being meek. And Jesus was, never, was neither weak nor timid, was he? That wasn't who he was. He upended the money changers' tables. He used a whip to drive animals from the temple. He lashed out the Pharisees with his tongue. He exercised authority over illnesses and demons. He taught with authority. Hardly meek in the way that we think of being meek, is it? So what James is saying is that, is that wisdom cannot be found unless it is pursued in a spirit of meekness like Jesus. Meekness is necessary for wisdom, which in turn leads to the good life. What a countercultural message for today in which so many seem to believe the good life cannot be realized until we are important, until we are a recognized leader in one's field or one's community. If you're not a leader, you're nothing. It's a change. So when James tells us that wisdom and understanding, say wisdom produces works done in gentleness or meek. Say meek. Meek. 
The image that comes to mind maybe should be more like that of a strong man or woman bending over to comfort a crying child. That's true strength. Maybe it's not throwing objects on the field during a football game that could injure people, including your own cheerleaders, dance team, and band as I watched last night. Not to mention the players and the coaching staff because you don't like the results of one call. Looking at you, UT. Is that really what we've come down to as a society? That it's okay to act this way as a group? Is that really the wisdom? And who does bring a thing of mustard to a football game? But why is it okay? When God gives us wisdom and understanding, we'll find that we'll also have been blessed with a kind of gentle strength, not like what was shown. A gentle strength, which seems to be two opposite words, but it's not. And that gentle strength, he talks about, but if you have bitter envy or jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, so now we see the other side of the coin, right? From gentleness and wisdom, now we're at bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The word zealous, which we get the word zeal from, say zeal. Zeal. Fervor. Jealousy. Can be good or bad. When Jesus cleansed the temple once again, it was counted to him as zeal for the Father's house. Good zeal. But zeal is often used in the bad sense, too, as when the high priest and his colleagues, filled with jealousy, zealous, arrested the apostles. So it's both good and it's bad. And the selfish ambition that's talked about here is like that, exhibited more like by our politicians, who are more concerned with keeping their offices than with the welfare of the nation. That sort of selfish ambition isn't limited to politics. It rears his head in almost every walk of life. That it's all about me and what I can get and what I can achieve. And he says, do not be boastful and false to the truth. The jealous and or ambitious people have no right to boast of their wisdom and understanding. To make such a claim would be contrary to the truth is what he's saying. And then he goes into, he says, such wisdom, the kind that is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, does not come down from above, but is earthly, this world. And it's unspiritual. It's natural as opposed to being spiritual. And it's demonic, devilish, evil, or other words that it uses. And James says, there is such a false thing as such a such a thing as false wisdom, and it's characterized by these two things: bitter envy and selfish ambition. If that's what drives you in life, that's a false wisdom. It's earthly, sensual, demonic. It doesn't come from God. 
God's not looking for us to achieve. God's looking to see what title we're going to have. God's looking to see what our cars look like or our house or what neighborhood we live in or what we've accomplished or all of the things that we've done. That's us. That's beyond us. That's not true wisdom. You see, he's already talked about in verse 13, encourages the wise and understanding to show their good conduct by deeds done in gentleness of wisdom. That was a call for them to allow their good gifts, their good fruit. Remember Rick last week talked about the fact is that a fig tree that doesn't produce figs doesn't really work. If our apple trees that are starting to develop here started producing something completely different, we would be very concerned about the fact is they're the fruit. You don't want to go to an orange tree and get a pear. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Nobody goes looking for the apples like I've mentioned before about you know, that have that look all messed up and have spots all over them and are all you know, coming to putrefy. You're looking for the best. And that's what he's talking about. That this wisdom is the best from above. And he says that the wisdom that is from above is first some different things. He says first it's pure. Say pure. It's pure. This wisdom is pure. Guiltless. Morally pure, without corruption. Then he says it's peaceable. Say peaceable. So it's designed and disposed to keep the peace, right? So this wisdom is peaceable. Then he says gentle. Say gentle. So it's appropriate. It's lenient. It's tolerant. It's gentle. Then a willingness to yield. Say yield. Reasonably easy to get along with. Right? Willing to, to give in. And then he says it's full of mercy. Say mercy. Mercy. Ready to extend grace. To give. To forgive. And then it has the good fruits. Say good fruits. Like the fruits talked about in Galatians 5. And what are the fruits of the Spirit back row? See, I missed that last week. It's okay. <laughs> Without a trace of partiality. Say partiality. Now, that's not a word you use every day. Not showing favor to one group over another, which is James's whole thing, right? The rich and the poor, right? Don't show partiality. That's wisdom from above. And the last one is hypocrisy. Say hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Not putting on a false face. This is the wisdom that is from above. This is his list of the things that we should be about if we're going to be wise. And the wisdom from above produces that which is good. This is a good tree producing good fruit. So James insists we need divine wisdom instead of this devilish wisdom we tend to rely on in ourselves. 
In Psalm 111, verse 10, we find these words, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of God, is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The awe of God. This from above. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the wisdom the Bible speaks about doesn't focus on how much we know, but on what sort of person we are. You don't need a degree to have the wisdom from God. You don't need a high-paying job or a title to have wisdom from God. It's totally different. And then all of this comes to its conclusion in verse 18 when he says, And a harvest, or fruit, of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So James here is summarizing the way of life he's been describing in all of these chapters right here. That peace encompasses those who practice it. And those who sow peace will reap its harvest and they will be blessed with righteousness. Reminds me of the beatitude from his brother. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Not blessed are the war makers. Not blessed are the conflict makers. Not blessed are the water bottle throwers. Not peacemakers. And that is the righteous ones who belong to God. In other words, James is arguing that you can talk all you want about being wise and smart and powerful, but unless your life bears witness to good works like these, you're not too wise. So now when we read James 3.13, at the beginning it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? We may not be so quick to raise up our hand. Let him show by his good conduct that his deeds are done in gentleness of wisdom. Are your deeds done in gentleness of wisdom? Or are they done in what you want to do? Got it by your own actions. And so we know the answer for what it means to be wise. <clears throat> but sometimes we confuse wise and smart. So what does it mean to be smart? So there's a big difference between being smart and wise. When we think about being wise, we often think of the phrase, wise, old... Anybody got any idea? Owl? Did you say Owl? You did. Owl. Whenever you see an owl, it's always a wise old owl. Why is it always an old owl? Why is it not a wise young owl? Wise old owl. See, owls are a classic symbol of wisdom throughout the ages. Perhaps it's their quiet ways. Maybe it's their wide-eyed stares when they don't blink. Maybe it's the fact they can swivel their necks 180 degrees. So they keep a sharp lookout behind them as they can in front of them. Maybe all of this gives reputation for being a creature of wisdom. There's another bird, though, called a crow. The crows, on the other hand, are known to be very smart, clever birds. They're very, they are. 
Crows are smart. And like parrots, they can be taught to talk. They can figure out fairly complicated logistic problems. But crows, like some of us, are also compulsive collectors. They like to collect things. They will fill their nest with odd bits of shiny metal, gleaming buttons, bright strings. Anything glitzy and gaudy that catches their eye is dragged home. If you left something outside and you couldn't find it, a crow could have gotten it and taken it away. So James is calling us as Christians to embody wisdom. That means we are to be the owls of the Word. Say owls. Owls. The owls of the world. But here's this thing. Too many of us have become crows. Say crow. Crow. We become crows because, because we've gotten caught up in what the world has to tell us and to, and to teach us. We've become smart to the ways of the world, but stupidly suckered into any new bright idea. Anything that tells us something in the world, any slick gimmick that comes along. And the world says, well, do it this way. We'll do it this way. Guess what? You're going to have your Christmas room because the container ships can't get in. Is that what Christmas is about to us as Christians? What comes in on a ship from China? But the world's Christmas will be destroyed because we can't get goods in to be able to buy and to give. It's that kind of stuff. And if owls and crows represent the distinction between clever and wise, that same distinction then also holds true in humans as well. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we smart or are we wise? Wise in the ways of God. Which once again doesn't count on a degree or how quick you can do algebra or whatever else. And then chapter 4, James goes another way. He begins going to take some of his different things. He says, asking and receiving now. So now he's talking about, in this instance, referring to asking in prayer is what he's talking about. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your own pleasures. So he says, one fault when you're asking, you don't even ask. You're failing to pray. You're not even praying for anything in the sense of what you should be praying for. Another fault would be praying selfishly. We can't expect God to answer our prayers that are not in accordance with God's loving will for all of us. See? And then he closes it up with some of these key Jamieisms that you know we, we've heard before, like resist the devil, draw near to God. So he says, submit yourself therefore to God. Because the natural order of things calls for us to be subject ourselves to God. To allow God to be the king of our lives, right? To live in compliance with God's will. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So here's the other side of the coin. We're to make ourselves subject to God while we're fleeing the devil. The Greek word diabolos, which is devil, is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Satan. In the Old Testament, Satan is the accuser, the prosecutor in the heavenly court. In the New Testament, the devil takes on a different character of a tempter here on earth. 
You know, Peter warned, the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's really an apt metaphor. You think about lions. Lions might roar, but they also do something else. They stalk. They stalk their prey, right? They're quiet and with great stealth, they're relentless in stalking their prey, unseen. My cats do it all the time. You know, the cats try to go and pretend like, you know, they're somehow hiding. So they pounce. So James, though, promises that if we resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. And if we subject ourselves to God and resist the devil, God will grant us the victory over the devil. Amen? That we shouldn't assume the devil will never return to tempt us, though. But each time we resist the devil, he says, we'll grow a little stronger in our ability to resist. So we can expect the next time when evil shows its face that we'll find our resistance a little more robust after successfully resisting this time. What enables us as people to do evil things when we aren't normally evil? Last night was an evil action. There's no way around it. Done by people who aren't evil. What makes us think it's okay? What makes it okay to ask somebody to jump from a building when we gather together as a group? it happens all the time. Then James brings it all together. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Say near. Once again, James shows the other side of the coin. If we resist Satan, we can anticipate that he will flee from us. But if we draw near to God, we can be sure that God will draw near to us. How do we draw near to God? There's no secret sauce. It's pretty much like losing weight. We all know how to do it, right? There are only two things you have to do to lose weight. You don't need a pill. You don't need anything else. You need to do what? Eat less. And what? Exercise. We don't need a, any help in trying to figure that out. It's not rocket science, but doing it is the rub. And drawing near to God is the same. It involves all the traditional spiritual disciplines. If you want to draw near to God, it's all laid out there in front. All we have to do is pray more. The reading of Scripture and take time to actually do it to be involved in private and corporate worship together, to be involved in the life of the church and helping those who are vulnerable. It also involves obedience, something that we don't like to do, the O in our bracelets, grateful obedience, dependence, the three things that we need to remember the most, and resisting evil in all its forms. That is what it takes to draw near to God. And the promise is that if we run towards God, we'll find God running towards us. In which the parable of the prodigal son comes to mind when you think about that. When the son returned home, 
pleaded to be restored, not as a son, but as a servant. The father was moved with compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This was the beginning of a great celebration for the son who was dead but was now alive. We too are guilty, but God remains a loving father who is looking down the road hoping to see us come nearer, to come nearer, to come a little closer than we were before and to keep coming closer. And we begin sure if we draw nearer to him, that he will draw nearer to us. Remember, the father went out to meet him. He didn't wait till we got to the porch sitting in a chair and just going, about time you got here. He ran, undignified, to go out and meet. Jesus said, I give you my peace, not as the world gives you. We'll never find peace or wisdom in what the world gives us. But if we turn to God and draw near, then James says we will find what we're seeking, what we're lacking. The wisdom from above that we all need to be followers of Christ. Remember, it's faith plus Action, not action minus faith. Amen. And so as we gather and we come to the altar of God in our hearts and in our lives, and as we think about what this song has to say to us and the words that God's been speaking to us during these moments of message, Let's consider what it means to receive this wisdom from above. And go to God this morning in a time of prayer, thinking about our own lives. How do I need to be wise with the wisdom of God?
I was kneeling down at the altar, I was thinking about the last 19 months. So much to find forgiveness for in life. So much anger, so much frustration, so much brokenness, so much human lead instead of being God-led. Whether you come down to this altar or you go to the altar of your heart or you spend some time at home with God to really clear out all this stuff. Because until we do, we can't move forward. It's what causes us to be angry like the things that happened last night. Any chance for that one more thing. If one more thing happens to me. How many times have you said that? one more thing happens, I'm just going to lose it. That's where we are as a society. We're going to have to clear all that away and be able to find wisdom from a higher source than us. Because our human wisdom has failed. God's arms are open wide to receive us and to give us a new start and a new life this morning. So go out clothed in strength and dignity. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Delight in the Lord's teaching. Open your hands to the poor and let your actions arise from the wisdom of God. And may God draw you near and strengthen you. And may Christ Jesus teach you the way to simplicity. May the Holy Spirit fill you with wisdom and make you fruitful in peace and righteousness. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, everybody both here and at home said together, Amen. Go make some Operation Christmas Child boxes. Eat some pancakes.